The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of me and or my ma, and we do not mean to offend. Warning, most names have been changed, dates might be a bit off, and general facts might be a bit exaggerated. So if you're picky, this might not be for you, because the point is, is that it's a good story. I am so excited to announce the return of Coffee with My Ma. In anticipation of the release of season two, we will be re-releasing season one over the next few weeks. So if you don't follow us already, we are on Instagram, Facebook, X, and TikTok. We also have a new website with a fresh new look that you can check out and where you can find all of our social media links. Shout out to Danita for helping us with the branding and website. She did an amazing job with the look. This time, I brought on a co-producer, Digan Hortus Brass, because last time, it was basically a one-woman show. And we also have a new editor, Brady Cross. We have a new sponsor, too, Moccasin Joe Coffee, out of Gunasadage, an indigenous family-owned and operated company. And season two would not be possible without the help of Canada Council for the Arts. So shout out to them, Nyawakoa, for making this possible. So re-listening to this episode, I realized I totally fucked up and said that my mom's birthday is the 14th when it is actually the 16th. So, sorry about that, Ma. Without further ado, here is Season 1, Episode 1, which originally aired April 16th, 2018. I've always respected my mother as a storyteller. Growing up, my sisters and I have heard countless stories, and they always have the same excitement and punchlines as the first five times you've heard it. I love seeing my mother's elegant and familiar hands waving, the expressions on her face, the not very dead-on impersonations of people, her exaggerations, but also her attention to detail, the nicknames she gives people, and generally just seeing the world and situations through her unique set of eyes. My mother, Gandhinehta Horn, is 77. I think my mother is a beautiful example of a woman who is unashamed of aging. We've watched her embrace each year with energy, vivacity, and optimism. There's definitely an intensity to her that she has passed down to all of us. Almost a sense of urgency and the need to feel constantly in motion and moving forward. Some words I've heard people use to describe my mother would be eccentric or controversial. I feel like you'll get to know my mom pretty well over the course of this season, but just to give a bit of context. Gahandineta Horn was born at Queens County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York on April 14, 1940. She was the second eldest of nine children. Her father, Joe, was an iron worker and her mother, Margaret, was a homemaker. My mother witnessed the implication of the St. Lawrence Seaway in Gahnawage. She was a big part of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. She worked behind enemy lines at Indian Affairs Canada during the 70s and 80s before being fired for failing to return to work in the fall of 1990 because she was stuck behind razor wire at Oka. (laughs) She's raised four daughters and has over a dozen or so grandchildren. There are so many decades and situations and stories and experiences that my mom has shared with me. Maybe it's because I'm the youngest, but I've had to piece together a lot of the past to figure out how my family got to this place, to where we are now. 
I've always had a need to know more, to dig deeper and understand why. Why? Why everything? Question everything, as my mom would say. I have no idea if it's because I'm an actress or because I'm the youngest, but these stories that my mother tells have always stimulated my imagination. I mean, they have everything that I, Ganyadio, could possibly want in a story. They've got history, a strong ethnically diverse female lead with a great sense of fashion, social issues, and best of all, a unique sense of humor. When my mother was 68, I was living in the Plateau Montréal with some roommates, post-theater school, chilling at the Fringe Festival, being like generally super hip in my early 20s. And I get a call from a sister telling me that Ma was crossing the border. Okay. And anyone who grew up like we did, post-Oka crisis, Quebec, Mohawk, Canada relations, etc., knows that crossing the border can more often than not come at a price. So, Ma was crossing the border in Aguzasne, okay, and the guards beat her up, okay, and she had a heart attack, but she's okay and she's at the hospital in Cornwall. <sighs> my mother, although we probably didn't have the best relationship at the time, was one of my two superheroes, my mom and my dad. I thought they were both indestructible. I moved home to Ganawage pretty quickly after that in an apartment on top of my ma's house. I would start going downstairs or next door to my sister's house to have coffee every morning. That was the beginning of a new phase for me in my life. The phase of wanting to know more about everything. I was always curious, but I wanted nothing to do with politics or activism as it had governed my family's life for so long and created so many obstacles. And then I realized I chose one of the most political paths, being an artist. I started actually really listening to my mother's stories, analyzing and asking deeper questions. This time in my life, I was trying to figure out my place within my family, within my people, you know, what my gift was, what I was supposed to do with it, you know, just those general things you think of as a young woman coming of age. <laughs> I thought to myself one day, how can I bring forth these stories and examples of a strong, outspoken Indigenous woman to my generation? My sisters and I have berated my mother to write her memoirs for years and years, but she just won't. So I thought, you know what, maybe I'll try writing a short film. So my sister and I pitched one of my mother's stories a few years later, and we won the competition. Thanks, Imaginative! It was awesome. And then you actually have to, like, get the movie made, which is way harder than you think, guys. So flash forward. Last year, I, Ganyetio, discover what the hell a podcast is. I get addicted. I listen to top-of-the-charts ones as well as terrible quality ones. I've listened to so many, and I'm always looking for more. I decided last year, okay, I think this is something I might be able to actually do. So I rack my brain for ideas, and they all happen to involve my mother in some capacity because I'm, like, super cool like that. I just hadn't any clue what the context, format, or, like, literally anything was going to be. But I decided I had to start somewhere. So I started to record my mother one day while I was having coffee downstairs at her place. She started telling me about the late, great Mohawk activist Richard Oakes. And I asked if I could just record her. 
And after that, I just asked her to tell me any story that she could think of. And I'd figure out what to do with it later. She's since gotten, like, really into it and remembering stories. We have, like, a full-on list going now. And I have requests from my sisters. (laughs) But most importantly is my mother is super comfortable with this. She trusts me. And she's the one getting to tell her own history. I recorded probably around 10 full stories and I sat on them for months, not really knowing what I wanted to do with it yet. I'd listen to them when I was away from home and lonely and I just wanted to hear my mom's voice. And then a grant I've since applied for and got, thanks Ontario Arts Council, sort of helped me streamline and focus my project while I was filling out the application. So then Coffee with My Ma was born. I imagined breaking her stories up and inserting my own thoughts here and there and you know, doing all kind of fancy stuff. But the more I listen to the clips, the more I love the interaction and dynamic between us, mother and daughter. The flow of the story told by the person who experienced it and the passing down of knowledge. It's also a peek into the insights and everyday conversations we have, not only as women, but as indigenous women. The old generation passing down to the new. Sure, my mom's stories can at times be unbelievable and make for really good entertainment, especially when told by her. I mean, that's what inspired me to do this, right? But I've always been inspired by every person's story and why they are who they are. This project is really about people's stories and about humanizing each other. And I hope to inspire other people to ask their mothers and fathers, uncles and aunties, friends and cousins to share with them. So, Now that you know a bit of how this project came to be, I can tell you about this episode. Ma takes on the Toronto Telegram. This is a story I have heard so many times, and I chose this as the first episode because I think it's a great way to just jump right in and give you a pretty good idea of what to expect for the rest of the season. Just a note, I recorded this while my mom sat on my couch and I cleaned my apartment. Again, this is before I knew what the heck I was going to do with all of this material, so please excuse my rookie recording skills. Alright, let's just get started. In episode 1, we find a young Miss Horn working in the Canadian Pavilion at the Expo 67 in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Okay, one of my all-time favorite stories is when you uh, got a criminal record. Well, it wasn't all that funny when I was going through it. Anyway, I was working at the World's Fair, and there was... When? In 1967. Where? Montreal. I know. Yeah. Anyway, there was a guy that worked um, for the Toronto Telegram. I won't give his name. I'll just call him Booker. Booger? Booker. Is that his last The book, like, you know... He thought that he was a writer, you know, so I'll call him Booker. Anyway, he used to hang around whenever I did my shows, and I was, you know, I was nice. I'm always polite. He'd say, oh, let's go and have uh, something to eat or something. Then after a while, I started getting kind of, you know, I I was getting fed up with him, you know. Yeah, And he was getting, he was trying to get close, you know, and I didn't have any, you know, I had no interest in him, but I was, I was friend, friendly with him, so anyway, sometimes they think just being nice is flirting, yeah, so anyway, 
um, I said, look, I don't want to have anything further to do with you. And he started, and I ran away, and he started to chase me. He chased me. Yeah, and, uh, and he was writing stories about the. He chased you where, like in the in the what you call it? I went in, I went in the metro and I went home, and he followed me. Anyway, what's what weird guys following you? I do have that problem. <laughs> so anyway, this so then I told him to stay away and never to bother me again. He followed you to your house, or you caught him like at, at I the caught metro? him following me, and I told him to stay away. Anyway, so then, you know what he did? Mm. He wrote three stories for in the Toronto Telegram, big stories about me, and they were very awful stories. You know, that I was a loose woman <gasps> and all this kind of stuff. He did. How do you even let... How does somebody let... Uh, like, how does an editor let that be published, you know? Well, McFarlane let, let it be published because I called the Toronto... Telegram, and I said, you know, I would like to have an opportunity to answer this because it's all false. Mm -hmm. There were three stories, and they were all false. And consecutively? Yes. Like day after day? Well, not day after day. One would come out, and a few days later, another one. And you would get the paper here? Yeah. People would show it to me. So, I, I was so... Upset over it. Well, yeah, you were like a kid, 27. Anyway, so so I decided, well, I, I would like to go and meet the board of the Toronto Telegram and, uh, and talk to them. So I wrote them a letter, and they didn't even answer it. And I said, well, I'm, so I called the Toronto Newspapermen's Club, and I arranged to have a meeting there. And I invited uh, McFarlane and all these people to come and meet me at the Newspapermen's Club so we can discuss this. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I McFarlane took the train. Was the editor? McFarlane was the editor. Yeah. So I took um, the train there. And uh, I went over to the Toronto Newspapermen's Club. I walked in. They knew who I was. <laughs> they said... Uh, where was it? I forget. I don't remember where it was. Anyway, so I go, so I go in there, and the guy says, I know, they're, not, this, they're this, not here. Describe the place. I remember you. Was it, it was a big place. No, the, the, the club. I went to the club. Oh, the club first. Yes, oh, the like newspaper the club. Oh. The newspaper men's club. It oh, was a club for it and, and drink and talk. And, yeah. yeah. Anyway... And the guy comes over and he said, I said, well, I arranged to have a meeting here. No, they're not coming. I said, what? Like Why not? All the way to Toronto, eh? Yes. And then I said, where is the office of the Toronto Telegram? So he gave me the address. So I, so I went there. So I walk in. And it's a huge lobby with dark floors and there was a big huge uh, guard there. I walk in and I said I'm going to go and see Booker. So he Booker said, and then there was like a, an escalator and it went up to this floor 
and where all of the journalists uh, sat with their typewriters. And um, the monkeys. <laughs> so I go. So I go up there, and the guy I'm looking for, he's sitting over to the left there, and he sees me. And he says, I went up to him, and he come, you know what he said to me? He says, you better get out of here, you fucking whore. That's what he said to me. So, oh, because you wouldn't even give him... And so I went over to him. Because you wouldn't go out with him. No, I wouldn't. Anyway, so, so I went over to him, and I gave him a right like this. What's that? Wham! A backhand punch? Yes, right in his mouth. And... Uh, he fell on the floor, and then he got up and he punched me. He punched me right in the stomach. No! Yes, he did. What a fucking... And then all these journalists are sitting around. They didn't know what was going on. <laughs> they didn't believe. What the hell? We're fighting like crazy there. And then, uh, anyway, so they grab me. They jump on me, and they grab me, and they hold me, you know, with my arms back, you know, and... And then this McFarland comes out, the managing editor. And he says, are you going to believe peacefully? I said, peacefully? I said, how can I leave when, you're, when you're, they're all hanging on to me? Let me go and I'll leave. Didn't you say the guy was underneath the desk? Yeah, he was underneath the desk. He was, he was hiding. When you, after he punched you? Yeah. So you came in, you gave one nice left-handed... Yes. Back, yes. A backhanded punch into and his then, mouth. And then he punched me. In the stomach. Well, by then, you know, we were punching and he went under the desk. But I didn't. What a fucker. How old was he? About a few years older than me, I guess. Anyway, so then I, uh, I was breathing. <laughs> I was so, so mad. So I go down the escalator and I'm waiting next to the guard there. And I asked him to call me a taxi. So they're taking uh, Booker for first aid because his, <laughs> his face is all uh, bleeding. Eh? Were you? His nose? No. <laughs> and you, you know what he does? Time to bleed. He's coming down there, all taking him, and they said, That fucking woman, she's a. He said a couple of things that weren't very nice. I don't want to say them, but. Why? What did he say? I want to know. Well, he just said that I was uh, a, bitch and a, a bitch and all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm sitting there. I'm still angry. My chest is going like this. This is like five minutes after? Yeah. So what do you think I did? Um, and was the person holding you? No, no. I was sitting waiting for my taxi to get me out of there. I'm sitting next you to the car. You again. Yes, I did. I ran after him. And, and then he ran away and he ran down the hall. And he ran into this room and he was pushing the door and I was pushing the door and I was trying to grab his face. <laughs> and then this, that great big guy, you know, that was the standing, guy? the security, he comes and he grabs me under the arms and he lifts me right up and he, and he shakes. Are you going to be a good girl now? <laughs> I said, let me go. So he put me down and then the taxi was there. I got in the taxi. No, I didn't get in a taxi right away. I didn't get a taxi. I went out, and I made a phone call to Peter Zowski. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> of the Toronto uh, 
No, the Munchkin. Toronto Star. He was with the Toronto Star. Oh, okay, okay. And he ended up being like a radio host and all that yes, stuff. Yes, yes. Like, but that was before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said... How old is he? He's here, like your age? No, he was older than me. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I said, Peter, I have done something just terrible. <laughs> he said, what did you do? So I told him what happened. He says, that's the funniest thing I ever heard of. <laughs> he says, he says, uh, don't even worry about it. Just get on the train and go home. <laughs> so I took his advice. And I had a book with me, you know, so I got on the train. I started reading it. And I remember the book. It was one of those um, uh, mysteries. It was a mystery. I remember reading it. It was a mystery book. So yeah. I'm sitting there reading it. And then I get to Montreal Central Station, and I see everybody getting off, and I'm standing there, and I see a whole lot of, you know... A central Station? I thought it was... It was uh, a Central Station. Oh, yeah. They're all there, and there's a whole bunch of uh, newspaper people there, and I said, geez, I wonder who's on this train. Famous you know, some person. famous person. So I'm waving, and then I see my brother Frank waving at me. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! <laughs> so I go, I said, Frank, what are you doing here? He says, you beat up a guy, didn't you? <laughs> no, that was nothing. <laughs> well, he said, <laughs> he said one of the reporters called him and told him to get me off the train at uh, Kirkland, well, at Dorval. From the Toronto but, And they all rushed out there from Gunawang, and they rushed out there to try and catch that train in to get Dorval. me off in Dorval, but they just missed it. So they all rushed to wow. Central Station. Oh, it's such a good story. I love this story. So then the cops come, RCMP and everybody, yeah. and click, 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 they put me in handcuffs and everything, and they take me. And they it was the RCMP? Well, yeah, I guess so, because it would be... Yeah, and they throw me into the this, you know... The clink? The clink. Yeah, they <laughs> took me. They took me to the clink. With all the prostitutes, I guess. Yes, I was in there with all the, with the prostitutes. Didn't you say you made friends with them? Yeah, they yeah. were they were okay. Probably nice, yeah. No, they were all right. But no, they... So I was thrown in there, and I was in there for about a week, and I couldn't get in touch with anybody, and nobody would get could get in touch with me. They did not know where I was. Everybody was looking for me. <gasps> and, uh, and, it, and every time they had... You know how they bring people out and they're trying to, like, a, a lineup? They kept throwing me in the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> Just because they had an extra body? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad nobody identified me for a, a murder charge or something. <laughs> but anyway, and they, they would only give me food if they took the money out of my purse and bought me a sandwich. Holy they shit. They didn't feed me. And this girl that was in the... Opposite, you know, she's, uh, I don't know what she was in there for. She says, watch this. And she pulls out this red wig. And she says, they'll never identify me. <laughs> she goes out, and her and I were both in the lineups all the time. But she had that red wig on. Nobody would identify. Nobody recognized her. Why, did she do something? I think she did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So finally, they had to take me back to Toronto, where all this happened. And I was charged by 
John Bassett, the owner of the Toronto Telegram, rich, rich guy, you know, one of those silver-haired family compact, men. family compact people, you know, like the bankers and everybody, they own everything, eh? So, they, they fly me back by Air Canada, and I'm on, I got, I'm, there's a woman, and she's handcuffed to me on the plane, and I needed to go to the bathroom, and she had to come in with me, you know? <laughs> in there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I see somebody in there that I know. He says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Toronto. And he says, what? Then she yanks me. <laughs> Don't talk to him. <laughs> so they take me. I get off the plane over there, and there's all the Ogwehunwe. They were going to grab me, you know? Mm -hmm. So they were there. They had to push me. They put me in a car, and then they put me in another car, and then took me to the jail there. <laughs> and they threw me in the tank, the drunk tank. It was a drunk tank. In Toronto? In Toronto. Drunk and, you know, and the whores. <laughs> so I'm sitting there reading this oh, book. Oh, whores, the prostitute? Yeah. And then they said, what are you in here for? So I told them, what? <laughs> they just said, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> and then the next, the next day they put me out there in the, you know where they put the prisoners? In the dock there? They put me in there with them. What's that? I don't know what that is. You know where they bring all the prisoners in, in the courtroom. And then they, oh. they put me in there with them. Why? To identify me as a, a prostitute, I guess. Jeez. So anyway, so they set a date for my trial. And then there was this woman. She was an Oklahoma woman. She's, she says, I'll take care of her. <laughs> and, and they got bail for me and everything. Oh, really? Yeah. So then I, I got it. Where was Frank and them? He was in Kahnawake. But they couldn't find you or anything? No, they couldn't find me. They were looking all over Montreal, in the jail, and nobody would tell them where so I was. So then who was this Oklahoma woman who... Uh... No, she, well, then they knew that I was. it was in the papers that I was being taken to Toronto. Oh, okay, so then they knew that you were there. Yeah, and then they were all over the courthouse, and they were everywhere. Oh, yeah, because you said they met you at the train station. or I mean, at the airport. Yeah, they were there, and then they tried to get me into their car and speed away, and I don't know what they were going to do, but they had plans. So anyway, so then um, the trial came up, mm -hmm. and I had to go back there, and oh my God, the, the way they made me out, I was like a Sylvester Stallone or somebody, like you know? Even? Eh? A Sylvester Stallone? What do you mean, like Rocky? beating? Yeah, beating, beating him up, you know. <laughs> what a and they had pictures of him, and his face was all swollen. It was all bloody and. Good. <laughs> I looked at it. What? The court was just filled with our people. Yeah. They were all there. Yeah. They're probably like. Yes, they were so proud of me. So I'm just sitting there, meek and mild, you know, not saying anything. Yeah, right. They got me a lawyer, and <laughs> and I was found guilty. And I got, you know, sentenced. 
plus fined. I had already served the sentence because oh. I had already been in jail in, in here in Montreal and over there. So they said that's there's no no need to put me away, you know. So there was just that there was just the fine that had to be paid, and it was paid. I don't know who paid it. Somebody did. But then, didn't you curse the paper? That's right. <laughs> anyway, so I wrote to the Toronto Telegram, and I did not like what they did when I was on the bridge, blocking the bridge in Aguasaste. They had a picture of me on the front cover. Yeah. Because I was charged with carrying a concealed weapon on that. This was... Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, and I had... In during our... They drew, they drew. Blockade... Of the, of the, of the customs. The blockade of the customs in 1967 in Aguasaste. Yes. There's the NFB film that they made. Yes. You were on Indian Yes. That's so the one. they did. So the Toronto Telegram. What did they do? Oh, they had pictures of me, and there was one where I was being uh, yeah, arrested, and they put a they put a big knife there. They put it in your picture. Yes, and they and they charged me for having a concealed weapon. Well, that wasn't very concealed. <laughs> and I didn't have a weapon. All I had was a camera tool, and I was taking the air out of the tires with that. Nice. <laughs> anyway, so I didn't like the Toronto Telegram. So I wrote them a letter, and I said that I was putting an Iroquois curse on the Toronto Telegram. <laughs> and uh, I wrote about what they had done and so on, and said, you are going to go out of business for what you did to Where me. did you publish that? Well, oh, I you wrote them a letter. I wrote them a letter. And then they went out of business, and they put that right on the front of their paper, the last issue, that it was my fault they were going out of business. They put that my letter in. <laughs> so there, those curses work. Anyway, that's the story. I love that story. That's one of my favorite stories ever. <laughs> so, there you go. That is by far one of my very favorite stories to imagine. I love to imagine that late 60s vibe, my mom in her fashionable outfit, fuming, on her way to the newspaper office, touching up her makeup in the cab, no doubt, getting to the building, gliding up that escalator like the calm before the storm, stepping off, clocking her target, and then strutting through the desk straight for the fucker and backhanding him right in the mouth. I don't like, however... Imagine the piece of shit punching her in the stomach. What goes there, He's lucky. You know what I also like? That innocent image of her on the train reading a mystery book with absolutely no idea what's waiting for her in Montreal. And my Uncle Frank and, and all the cousins racing to Dorval to intercept and then racing downtown to Montreal. And my mother not realizing that all the cops in the action is there for her. Innocently, she steps off the train and then gets swept up in the craziness and having handcuffs being slapped on her little bitty wrists. Oh, mommy. And then being thrown in jail. Oh, she's so poor. <laughs> oh, so in regards to the cursed newspaper, I've done a bit of research and yes, it did fold. 
Apparently there are copies of it available on eBay, but I think I'm just going to go to the library and look on that microfiche stuff and see if I can snag copies of the articles that that guy wrote bashing my mom and of the article they supposedly published saying my mom cursed the paper. We ended up confirming that it's not on the front page, but it is somewhere inside the paper. So if I can get that, I will definitely share it with you all on a future episode. So now that the very first episode is done, I'm going to get to work with my editor on episode two. I haven't decided which story I'm going to share with you all yet, but I can tell you that my intro won't be as long as this first episode, I promise you. I just felt like I really needed to tell you all that, like a true Ungwehua storyteller, you know, start at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning, Wahi. So I'm not sure when I'll be posting the next episode, probably in the next couple weeks or so. But in the meantime, please add us on social media. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Coffee With My Ma Podcast and on Twitter, Coffee With My Ma. You can also find us on Facebook at Coffee With My Ma. <laughs> and you can email us at coffeewithmyma at gmail.com. All right, that was episode one from season one. And again, we are very excited to bring season two to all of our listeners. Links to our website and any other info can be found in our show notes. And be on the lookout in your feed for upcoming episodes. Nyawankoa to my ista, my ma, for her stories, and all of you fantastic people for taking the time to stop by and have some coffee with me and my ma. Okay, <laughs> there's a correction you wanted to make. What what did she, what did he actually call you? He called me a fucking Indian whore. Okay. And what was the other correction you wanted to make that when he chased after you, what did you do? I ran away. And then you jumped in what? A chariot. Where was the chariot? It was going all over the uh, fairgrounds <laughs> and I made the guy go fast. <laughs> Take me out of there. <laughs> and I was pushing him off. He was standing on the back, and I pushed him off. Yeah, he was trying to hitch a, a ride on there. You can't take a hint, I guess, eh? No. Mm. Are you going to leave peacefully? I said, well, how can I leave when you're all holding me? Let me go. He said, oh, no, you might hit me, too. <laughs> Really nice. Okay, wait, go. okay. Those women in the drunk tank were really, really nice to me. Yeah. And they sympathized with me. And uh, and you know what? Yeah. I would never have missed that for the world. Really? No, I wouldn't have. That was fantastic. That's all I wanted to say. Here. <laughs> you mean like? I mean that was a great experience for me. To t- to meet those girls. Yeah. Talk to them. They're all cool and everything? Yeah. yeah. Were any of them Ngohua? No, they were all no. white. No, that's nice. I think there was one black girl. Yeah.